0: If you would, turn back with me in your copies of God's Word to the 7th Psalm. 7th Psalm. This evening our text is the entirety of this portion of God's Word. It is the case, and the Scriptures communicate this to us in so many ways, that the Christian is at his best when he is sensible of the grace of God and is feasting on that. The scriptures also communicate to us both by precept and example that the Christian is at his clearest, that is his most visible whenever he's under affliction. You see, affliction strips away so much, and it shows us the godly man, as it were, at his base level. It shows us his fundamental principles upon which he lives. And the seventh psalm, that's what we see. A a man, a godly man, who has been blasted by affliction. But in that moment, you and I get a picture of his heart. We see more clearly, even though he's not enjoying feasting on the sensible love of God, you see a man who has been truly made godly. Now it begins by reminding us, of course, that this is a psalm about affliction, even in the superscription. This was the song of David which she's saying concerning the words of Cush, the Benjamite. The identity of Cush we don't really know for certain. Neither can we say certainly anything about the occasion. But as we read throughout the psalm, you'll notice that this is a case of calumny. This Cush, whoever he may be, was a man who was spreading false rumors about this, our, our psalmist. He was going around and accusing him falsely of all kinds of sins. This was the psalmist played, But it went beyond that. It was not just false accusations that David was faced with, but the man was being persecuted because of these calumnies. And so as you work through this psalm, you'll notice that David never really leaves very far his affliction from his mind. In verses 1 and 2, you have petition, and you see there his petition for mercy from this affliction. The next part, verses 3 to 9, you'll notice that the psalmist descends into what we would call self-malediction. That is, whenever the psalmist says that if he indeed is guilty of that which he has falsely accused, the psalmist would willingly undergo all kinds of chastisement. And then as you continue through that, you notice he goes from self-malediction to verses 7 and following to a prayer for vindication. He knows that he is guiltless with regard to these charges, and he prays that God would undertake for him. In verses 10 to 16, then, the psalmist falls to meditation. Moving briefly for a time out from his own affliction, he thinks about general truths. He thinks about the end of the godly, and then the end of the wicked. And all of this closes in verse 17, not with deliverance, All of this closes with praise. You and I leave the seventh psalm after walking with a psalmist through this affliction, with a psalmist's intent to rejoice in the God who has promised him comfort, the faithful God who would not forsake him. Now, what is central to all of this is what you find in verse 10. Where there the psalmist says, my defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. He says there, my defense. Uh, That word could easily be translated, my buckler or my shield. Now I want you to notice, friend, that the psalmist calls God such, not because of any promise that was peculiar to him as king of Israel. This is so very important. In fact, I can't stress to you how important this is. This 10th verse, the psalmist lodges his hope, not in any promise that he receives specifically from Samuel or Nathan, but a promise that he says in that very verse, which belongs to those who are upright in heart. My defense, he says, is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. Now, I want you to notice, friend, that this is a very general statement. He begins by saying that these ones are upright in heart which means he's thinking beyond just this single instance of a false charge. They're not just guiltless with regard to the calumnies that David was then faced with. He calls them upright in heart because he's referring to those who are sincere. These are the godly he here describes. And he says that this is true for all of those who may so be described. This promise is theirs as much as David's. Now, friend, who are the upright in heart? In Psalm 119, the psalmist describes them thus. He says, those who have uprightness in heart have learned thy righteous judgments. These are those who Paul describes to Titus in the second chapter of that epistle. These are those who are zealous of good works. In other words, friend, this is another way of describing the saints of God. And what this 10th verse then holds out to us, what is the central theme of the 7th Psalm, is a promise that is present, and that belongs to all of God's saints. A promise that belongs to all of those who are upright in heart, and the psalmist hangs his life and his hope upon it. And friend, in short form, what is that promise? Well, our promise, our theme for this evening is this, that God presently, advocates for his saints. God presently advocates for his saints. And I want us to see that in three ways. I want us to see their cause, their clearing. And finally, I want us to think briefly about their conduct. So take first of all their cause. There you have it in verses 3 to 5. The psalmist begins there in the third verse, if there be iniquity in my hands. Now, what you notice here, friend, is that the psalmist is going to God with this very specific calumny, and he's carrying it before God, knowing full well that he is guiltless of this specific charge. Now, he goes to God in this way, first of all, the simple fact that God hates a false witness. The Lord hates a false witness that speaketh lies, Psalm Psalm, Sorry, Proverbs 19.5. A false witness shall not go unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. You see, friend, the God of truth, the psalmist can appeal to, because this is a lie, this is a falsehood, and God will vindicate the truth. This is the God whom David serves. A God who vindicates what is true. But I want you to step back just for a moment, friend, as you think of this. As you look throughout the rest of the psalm, the psalmist is not predicating all of the goodness that he expects to have afterward upon what is just related to this false accusation and God's clearing him of it. It's far more general than that. And you need to go perhaps even a step further. And could it not be the case that perhaps the man is guiltless with regard to this false accusation, but, but God as one who chastises his own may lead him through false accusation as part of God's rod. God has done this in the past. Think of the curses that David faced from Shimei that were false. Yet David says the Lord bid him to do so. It was part of David's affliction, part of the rod. So why, friend, does David approach God in this way? I want you to notice, secondly, what the psalmist says there. He says, judge me according to my righteousness and the integrity that is in me. I would hazard a guess that not too many of us are quick to pray such things. First of all, we're perhaps not quick to do so because we recognize the psalmist is not comparing himself to his enemies here. He's speaking far more generally Uh, far more abstractly. He's not just saying that I'm more righteous than these ones. He's saying that he has integrity within, that he has a righteousness whereof he may speak. Secondly, I also want you to notice this too, that he's not saying this about just this particular charge. He's not saying that I'm righteous in this regard, that I have integrity with regard to this false accusation. He's speaking far more generally. And friend, the question you and I have to ask is, how can David, and so then how can any, pray as David does here? The question is a necessary one, and I hope it's one that we've wrestled with before, before this point. It's a question that's necessitated because, of course, the psalmist reminds us that, that our sins are not hid from the Lord. Our secret sins are in the light of thy countenance, Psalm 90. In thy sight shall no man living be justified, Psalm 143. So how can you say this? A friend, the scriptures answer this for us rather directly. I want to just read to you what you find from the prophecy of Habakkuk. There the prophet tells us, The soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. That's the first line. And that line forms the first part of a Parallel. Which follows thus, but the just shall live by his faith. I want you to notice what there the prophet does. He says, he describes for us who are not upright. And then in the second line, he determines to tell us who those who are upright truly are. And he says, those are those, the ones who are just, who live by faith. Now friend, this is such an important element. Of our understanding of the Old Testament and understanding how to sing the Psalter aright. When the scriptures communicate to us these words, judge me according to my righteousness, I want you to recognize, friend, that the righteousness that's in view there, the integrity that is in view there, is a gospel piety. It is a believing holiness. And that's supposed to be taken in two senses. In one sense, of course, as we think of ourselves clothed in the righteousness of Christ in terms of our justification, this is true. But it's important for me to say to you as well, friend, that you're also supposed to see that the psalmist says this because of that inward work of piety that makes him a sincere and obedient saint. It's not one against the other, but the two going together. That's what the the prophecy of Habakkuk tells us. Those who are truly upright in heart are those who are just, who live by faith. They have a gospel piety. And friend, what you see here then is that gospel sincerity, this sincerity, is that, friend, that God is pleased to vindicate. In fact, the psalmist hangs his life upon that promise. Just very briefly, friend, The very purpose of election is described very much in similar ways. In Romans 9 you read thus. The people of God are called that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. I want you to notice what he says there. That the purpose of election was in part that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of his mercy. Friend, the whole purpose, as the Apostle there describes it for the whole purpose of election is truly the exhibition of God's grace, which again, friend, has to be considered in two lights. We have to consider it in terms of the bar of heaven, whereby the righteousness of Christ is sufficient, sufficient to justify God's people. But also, friend, it's so very important to show, friend, it's so very important for the onlooking world to see that the work of God's grace is, in his people was real. That they were indeed by his spirit made a people zealous of good works. I want you to think just for a moment about the book of Job. Because friend, what we think of here in the seventh psalm really concerns the entirety of that portion of God's word. The book of of Job is not fundamentally about Job. Job. The book of Job is not even fundamentally about the vindication of Job, his name. As you read the first and the second chapters, and then as you read the 42nd, you'll notice that the entirety of that book is about the vindication of God's grace in Job's life. That's what Satan called into question. That's what Job's friends called into question. And as Job maintains, yes, a failed man, but maintains sincerely nonetheless his hope in God, holding to a living Redeemer. Well, friend, that whole book shows the vindication of God's grace. It shows that Job was a man who indeed, as he's described in the first and second chapters of that book, he was upright in heart. And you see what you find in that text, just as you find in the seventh psalm, is that that is the way God deals with those who are his saints. He will vindicate his own work of grace in them in time. And so says the psalmist, defence is of God which saveth the upright in heart. That is the cause that God undertakes. Now, secondly, I want us to consider briefly the clearing that God's people expect. In verse 6 it's communicated to us via petition. Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. But then in verse 9 it's described for us. Let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. And so friend, what's very important for me to say to you this evening is that the psalmist is not looking to the eschaton. He's not looking to the final judgment here. He is looking for a vindication that is present a vindication in this life, a clearing that he would see in the land of the living. And he's also looking here to see the end of the wicked, even in the land of the living as well. In verse 11, friend, this present desire is made all the more palpable. Where there the the psalmist says that God is angry with the wicked every day, not just the final day, But every day, and then the psalmist goes on to describe God's actions that flow from that just wrath. What you see here, friend, is the psalmist looks to God to vindicate, to vindicate him. A man who is sincere and made so by grace, to vindicate him now. And to do so through providence. I don't know, friend, if if we, as a generation, are accustomed to thinking in the ways that the psalmist here leads us to. But we need to be. You see, the psalmist says that there is a present vindication that he may hope in. Just as he knows that there is a present form of God's wrath that he may see with regard to the wicked. I know that I've used this analogy now for several weeks. But I do really believe, friend, that in moments like this, the scriptures come to us with a pair of glasses and urge us to see the world around us aright, because we don't. The psalmist says that God has promised to undertake for his people, to vindicate for them, and the psalmist expects that in God's providence he'll see something of that. Just as he expects in God's providence that the Lord will manifest his indignation against the wicked. You see in verses 12 to 16 what the psalmist expects. Because, friend, God's disposition toward the godly and the wicked are present, and because God acts presently accordingly, he expects that the wicked, they may go so far as Heman, that they'll dig a pit and fall into it themselves and that the psalmist will see it. So he prays. You see, friend, this is the clearing that the psalmist has in view. It's the manifestation that God, even in his providence, advocates presently for his saints. There are so many themes, friend, that the the Psalter brings to us along those lines. I would again direct your attention to Psalm 142 where there the psalmist prays for deliverance from particular providences because God is his portion in the land of the living. And we could go to so many other texts like it. The psalmist thinks about God's providence in terms of God's favor toward his people, even as he considers as well God's providence in relation to God's indignation with the wicked. And so the clearing of the saint, is one that is present, and one that would take place in providence. The thirdly and finally as we close, I want us to look briefly at the conduct of the psalmist through all of this. In verse 1 you have really uh, the very note that you and I should end with in verse 17. There the psalmist says, In thee do I put my trust. In verse 17, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness word righteousness there in context really could be translated faithfulness. Now friend, what do you see there? You see two things. First of all, you see that the psalm begins as it ends. The psalmist manifests faith at verse 1. And that faith continues right to the 17th verse. He says, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness or faithfulness. All of this is done in the context of faith. In fact, I also want you to notice that, that throughout all of this difficulty, as he makes believing access to the throne of grace, he appeals to that court. This is so very important because in verse 8 you notice there, he says, the Lord shall judge the people's. He goes to God who is judge overall, and and this is the court of appeals to which he turns. And so as he approaches God believingly, friend, I want you to notice that his first port of call, so to speak, is not to take his case into the civil realm, but as he is a man endowed with faith, whose trust is lodged in the Lord, he goes first and foremost to God's court the bar of heaven. And then, friend, it ends, as we've just said in verse 17. As he approaches believingly, as he appeals to God, to his court, he leaves in the 17th verse with a vow and an expectation to praise God for the faithfulness that will be manifest. And all of this, friend, teaches us one very basic truth that we can't miss. And that is that his conduct and the conduct of the godly is to wait in faith for clearing. To wait believingly upon the Lord. Romans 12 that we read, words that are well known to us, I'm sure. Avenge not yourselves, rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. As we close and we seek to apply this text to ourselves, friend, the first question I have to ask, and really the only question we have to ask is, do you know God the way that the psalmist does in this text? Do you know him as your advocate? As the one who presently undertakes for you? Can you say, can you say as we sang in Psalm 56, I know it, that God is for me. The psalmist could. In fact, as we see in the seventh psalm, he hangs all upon that truth. The seventh psalm, though, does provide us ways of examination uh, to to see if if we are in in like case with the psalmist, to see if indeed we we can call the Lord our, our advocate, the one who is the uplifter of our heads. It concerns, friend, first of all, the man's conscience. Just very briefly, I want to call your attention back to what you find there. In verses 3 to 5, you find that self-maledictory word, where the psalmist goes to God and he says, if I have been guilty of all of these things of which I've been falsely accused... Let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honor in the dust. I want you to notice, friend, that yes, we know that the psalmist knows that he's guiltless with regard to these charges, but you and I are not supposed to read that as vain boasting. If we've been paying attention to what we see in Psalm 6 and in others as well, we know, friend, that this man has a very tender conscience before God. And what then you and I are supposed to see in that fifth verse is that the psalmist says that if indeed I have been guilty of such, then I would willingly, and he means this friend, I would willingly bow to my enemies howsoever wicked they may be, render my life, and even allow it to be such that they would put my name the perpetual shame. Friend, this is a man who knows who knows the sinfulness of sin, not in its not in its entirety, no finite creature can, but he has a tender conscience. And he's even willing, friend, to say that if he's done this, he is quite willing, quite willing to face such chastisement. The second thing, friend, I want you to notice, though, is not only does he have a tender conscience, but he has a conscience that has obviously striven to be clear, both toward God and man. We know he's not guilty of that which he's falsely accused. And, and friend, you need to recognize that part of the reason he is guiltless in this regard is because God, by his grace, has given him a gospel holiness. He has been conformed, and is increasingly so, to the image of his Redeemer. And so, friend, you see here a conscience that is tender to God, a conversation, a lifestyle that demonstrates the grace of God. And friend, what you see over all of this is a man who goes believingly to the promises of God. All of those are necessary, friend, to be able to say that I know that God is for me. The promise, friend, in this text, and this is where we close, is one of perpetual consolation for the believer. The psalmist goes to a God who has promised to undertake for his own. Those who are possessed of this gospel, this believing holiness, he will save them. And even in the land of the living, they will know tokens of his favor just as they will see in the same time God's indignation against his enemies. And friend, the psalmist reposes in that truth. And David, friend, had no greater claim to that promise than any of God's people in any age. You and I, if we are possessed of like holiness, friend, this promise is as real and as abiding for you as it was for David. He is your portion indeed in the land of the living. Friend, you will know that. So we close with the exhortations that that flow directly from the text. First, you and I are to labor to keep a conscience clear. Uh, Just as David could in this case with this false accusation, friend, you and I ought to labor to make our conversation such. Or to remember that, friend, this is supposed to be through gospel holiness. The man is endowed with faith, not self righteousness. And, friend, so he is made more like Christ. That is always the order of piety. And what you see here, then, friend, too, is a man who rests upon God's advocacy. It's not an abstract theological principle, it is, as it were, the nail upon which his life hangs. And all of this, friend, should lead us to cry that God would grant more faith and that for his own namesake. Amen.